If you have been a part of our church family for any length of time, then you are aware of the fact that we have quite an emphasis on short-term mission ministries and opportunities. We have sent and continue to send short-term teams to Kenya, Tanzania, Zambia, Ethiopia, Ukraine, Russia, Turkey, Bolivia, Colombia, Albania, New Orleans, Cambodia, Italy, and other places that have slipped my mind at the present. These short-term missions accomplish two very important purposes. Number one, they minister to the people to whom they are sent. I remember talking with one of our missionaries when I was on one of these short-term mission teams a few years ago, and we were doing a number of things out in the community, etc., and he, he made the comment, this team has accomplished more in outreach and contacts than we could have accomplished in years because there were so many out in the community ministry. So if the short-term mission is set up well, it can accomplish a great deal in the area of contacts, outreach, building, training, equipping, etc. That's one of the primary purposes of short-term mission trips. But secondly, short-term mission trips also give valuable experience to the people who are sent. Those who are sent are stretched by their involvement in ministry to other people, and especially by ministry in another culture. So the benefit is a two-way street. Short-term missions can be a benefit to the people to whom the teams are sent, and they can be a benefit to the people who are sent. Granted, there are some short-term mission projects that are not well thought out, and therefore they aren't really very valuable. Unfortunately, the teams that are sent sometimes can be more of a hindrance than a help, and some short-term mission trips are not much more than a vacation in another land. But if they are well-planned, and if the right people are on the team, short-term missions can be very valuable. Now, why am I talking about all of this? Because our Lord Jesus Christ was the one who sent out the very first short-term mission team. We read, it about, we read about it in the text to which we come this morning. Turn with me, please, to Mark chapter 6, if you are not already there. Mark chapter 6, and please follow along as I read verses 7 through 13. Mark tells us, And Jesus called the twelve to himself, and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Also he said to them, In whatever place you enter a house, Stay there till you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you, when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in that day of judgment than for that city. So they went out and preached that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick, and heal them. 
As you study the gospel records and read through the gospel accounts, it is obvious that our Lord was very purposeful and strategic in the way he conducted his ministry. It was not haphazard, as some people assume. Jesus didn't just wander around the countryside uttering parables to whomever happened to be in the vicinity. That's often the way he is portrayed in movies and films, as sort of this wanderer who just sort of haphazardly walked about the hills and said these unusual sayings that no one understood, etc. That is not an accurate picture of him at all. Jesus moved, and he taught, and he acted with purpose. One of his purposes was to train his 12 disciples so they would be able to take over the ministry when he left to go back to the Father's right hand. Part of that training process is what we see before us in the passage we just read. Jesus sent out his disciples to minister to the lost sheep of the house of Israel to do ministry apart from him. But not only was Jesus sending out his men for the sake of the multitudes or the the people who would receive their ministry, he was sending out his men for the sake of training them and giving them valuable experience for their future ministry. As I mentioned in the introduction, good short-term mission trips work both ways. They are effective in ministering to the people to whom they are sent and They are effective in impacting those who are sent. And Jesus understood this. This is why he took so much time to prepare his men for their mission. These verses that we just read record a brief summary of the instructions Jesus gave to the disciples about what they were getting into by going out on this ministry trip. By the way, this is a vastly abbreviated account of what Jesus said when you compare it to the lengthy discourse recorded in Matthew chapter 10. In fact, some of you, depending on the translation you use, may have noticed that there was a phrase I read in my translation that was not in yours that comes out of Matthew 10. So this is a vastly abbreviated account. However, it sums up the key points of what Jesus said. So let's consider it together. Mark tells us in verse 7 that he called the twelve to himself, and began to send them out two by two, and gave them power over unclean spirits. Notice the word called or summoned here in this verse. This is an intense word in the original language, which means to call to oneself, or to call face to face. Jesus called his men to himself, and he called them for the purpose of commissioning them. You see, he is about to send them out to do ministry. He's about to send them out to do work. Jesus called his men to himself face to face so he might send them out on this special mission. Something that is important to notice about this verse is the fact that Jesus gave his men unique power for their mission. This was not something they had prior to this point. Let me say it another way. Prior to this time, they were not able to cast out demons or to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Yet, prior to this time, they belonged to Christ. They were already Christians. So what is the point I'm trying to make? 
I think it is important to see that the power to cast out demons and the power to heal sickness is not inherent in being a Christian. You see, this is what many Christians teach today. They say, if you are a Christian, you can heal. If you are a Christian, you can cast out demons. If you are a Christian, you can speak in other languages. All Christians are supposed to do these things. Beloved, that kind of teaching simply cannot be supported by Scripture. These unique, miraculous sign gifts were never intended to be for every member of the body of Christ. In fact, none of the spiritual gifts are intended to be for every member of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 29 and 30 says this, Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? And by the way, every one of those questions, in 1 Corinthians 12, 29 and 30, every one of those questions in the Greek text is worded in such a way to expect a no answer. Are all apostles? No. All prophets? No. All workers of miracles? No. Do all have gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. God never intended all Christians to be apostles or prophets or teachers or workers of miracles. He had never intended all to have the gift of healing or all to be able to speak in other languages. Isn't it amazing that there are preachers and churches that that continue to promote this idea that God's will for every Christian is to speak in tongues? Beloved, that is the very error the Holy Spirit sought to correct almost 2,000 years ago in Scripture, yet it is still being propagated wildly today. It's being taught here in the U.S., and the same error is being imported around the world. I have encountered it in Germany, in Africa, in Russia, in Italy, and in Ukraine. Whenever I hear a preacher make that kind of statement, I find myself asking the question, have you ever read the Bible? Have you ever read 1 Corinthians 12? Have you ever read what the Holy Spirit says? Do all speak with tongues? The Holy Spirit's answer is no. Do all have gifts of healing? No. So it's important to understand that the power to cast out demons and the power to heal sickness is not inherent in being a Christian. These were unique, miraculous sign gifts given by Jesus to his disciples, to the apostles, when he was about to send them out on their mission. These sign gifts would verify that they were representatives of the king and they were spokesmen for the king and his kingdom. Just as the miracles of Jesus were a foretaste and a foreshadowing of the future kingdom, the same miraculous power displayed by the disciples would validate their message that the kingdom is drawn near because the king was present on earth. That was to be their message. That was to be their mission. And that was to be their methodology. With this unique power, it would be obvious that the disciples were from Jesus because they were able to do the very same things he did. I mean, think about it. They're they about to go out on a, on a short-term mission to preach. What are their credentials? Why should anyone listen to them? Why should anyone believe them? What verifies their authority? 
Today, the written word of God verifies the messenger and his authority if he's in line with Scripture. But before the New Testament was written, God verified the messenger by miracles. And so Mark tells us in verse 8, He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts. The staff was the common walking stick that was carried by all travelers in those days. It was used for walking the rugged terrain of the land of Israel, but it could also be used to protect yourself from animals or criminals. The disciples were allowed to take that item, but Jesus told them not to take the common food sack or any bread or any copper coins that could be used to buy bread. In other words, Jesus told them not to take food or provisions for food. They could not take their own money for this mission. They were to be supported by the people to whom they ministered. They weren't to charge for their ministry, and they weren't to get rich by their ministry, but it was completely appropriate for them to accept support for their basic needs and for their ministry. This is the Lord's pattern, not only here, but also throughout the rest of the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 9 explains this in great detail. Those who preach the gospel should derive their living from the gospel. So Jesus did not allow the disciples to take money on this mission. Not only did Jesus tell his men not to take their own money for this mission, he even told them not to take, up, take any backup provisions. The people to whom they ministered were to provide for these things. Again, this is the pattern the Lord established in His Word. 1 Timothy 5.18 says, The laborer is worthy of his wages. Galatians 6.6 says, Let him who is taught the Word share in all good things with him who teaches. Here on this occasion, the Lord was was establishing a pattern that would be followed throughout the first century and then laid down in the pages of Holy Scripture for future generations. Those who are called by God to spend their lives ministering the Word are to be supported by the people to whom they are ministering. So that was Jesus' instruction regarding this aspect of the disciples' ministry. They were not to take food or money with them as they left. But that wasn't the only restriction Jesus gave them. Look at verse 9. Mark tells us that Jesus said, But to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. The disciples were allowed to wear sandals, but they couldn't take two coats. Wealthy individuals often wore two tunics because the second one was used as a backup for the first But Jesus didn't allow his men to take a second tunic. They were going to have to depend on the Lord and his people to supply their needs. So that was Jesus' instruction regarding that aspect of their ministry. Now he turns to their approach in their ministry or their methodology. How would they carry it out? What were they supposed to do? Verse 10, Also he said to them, In whatever place you enter a house... Stay there till you depart from that place. In other words, Jesus is saying, listen, if if people are receptive to you and your ministry, stay there and continue to minister. 
We know that is what Jesus is saying by what he says in the following verses. Jesus knew that his men would be welcomed and received by some, and they would be rejected by others. So in essence, Jesus was saying to his men, don't waste your time with those who are going to resist you and oppose you. There's too much work to be done. As you go, if you find people who are receptive to you and your ministry, stay there and continue to minister in that context. If the household is receptive, stay there and be a blessing to that household by basing your ministry from that place. If the household is not receptive, move on. Don't force the issue. They reject you to their own detriment, is what Jesus was telling his men. In fact, he says in verse 11, And whoever will not receive you, nor hear you, when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Notice that even though the disciples were given the miraculous power mentioned in back, back in verse 7, the priority of their ministry was clearly preaching and teaching. How do we know that? Because Jesus says here, whoever will not receive you nor hear you. That's, that was the focus of this mission. The disciples had a message that was paramount because they were to preach that the king had come and the kingdom was near. Therefore, repentance was the proper response. That was the primary focus of their mission. The primary focus was calling people to repentance. The miracles were for the purpose of validating the message, but the message was central. And Jesus knew that their message would not be accepted by many. That's why he said what he did at the end of verse 11, where he says, When you depart from there, shake off the dust from under your feet as a testimony against them. Shaking off the dust of the feet was a cultural expression to say, in essence, okay, you're on your own. You have rejected the true God, and you don't belong to Him, so you're on your own. You are left to your own reprobate spiritual condition, and you will face the consequences. And what would those consequences be? Beloved, they would be worse than anyone could imagine. Matthew's account makes it clear that Jesus added the comment, Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Jesus began that statement with his commonly used strong word of affirmation, Verily, truly, assuredly. Jesus often used that word to introduce a statement that was shocking or one that was of utmost importance. And that statement in Matthew 10, 15 is both. It is a statement of utmost importance and it is, it is a shocking statement because of the severity of the judgment that Jesus describes. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. You know what God did to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know how he rained down fire and brimstone on those cities. 
and he obliterated them with such thoroughness that even still to this day, biblical archaeologists, historical archaeologists, can't exactly locate where Sodom and Gomorrah once were. Well, there's a lot of research going on, a lot of speculation, but no one can say with exactness, this is where Sodom and Gomorrah were located because God obliterated them. And Jesus said, listen, men, those who won't listen to your message and hear it, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Those who reject the messengers of the king and their message will be judged more severely than Sodom and Gomorrah. And lest anyone tend to doubt that fact, Jesus began his statement with that word, Verily, truly, assuredly, there's no doubt whatsoever about this fact. Those who reject the messengers of the king and their message will be judged more severely than Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because the more truth someone has exposure to, the more accountability that person has. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah were involved in the heinous sin of homosexuality, so God judged them severely. But rejecting the message of the king is far more heinous than the sin of homosexuality. Therefore, the person who rejects the call of repentance and the invitation to enter the kingdom of God will be judged far more severely than the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And beloved, understand, this was not only true back in the first century when Jesus sent out his disciples on, his first short term, on this first short-term mission. This is still true today. The more exposure a person has to the truth, the greater accountability before God. The greater the revelation someone has received, the greater the judgment if that truth is rejected. Let me be more specific. Those of you who sit in here and hear the Word of God clearly explained and clearly taught, if you reject that message, if you reject the call to repentance, your accountability will be severe. Jesus said it this way in Luke 12, 48, To whom much is given, from him much will be required. If you have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and the offer of salvation by faith in him, and you refuse him, you refuse to repent, you refuse to trust Christ as your Savior and Lord, your judgment will be more severe than what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah. I tell you something, it's a scary thing to have exposure to the truth of God and not accept it. It's scary. You know, it's not uncommon for people to wrestle with the issue. Even a lot of Christians wrestle with it. Well, what about those who have never heard? It's a very common perplexing issue. But I I hardly ever have heard of people, Christians or non-Christians, wrestling with the issue of, What about those who have heard a lot? What about those who have heard a lot and they reject it? What's it going to be for them? It's a dangerous thing to hear the truth and reject it, not respond to it. It's a damning decision to hear the gospel and not respond to it. That's the point that Jesus was stressing in these instructions to his men as he was preparing to send them out on this first short-term mission. Verse 12, Mark tells us, So they went out 
and preached that people should repent. Notice that comment that Marx makes about what the twelve did. They went out and preached that people should repent. That was and is first and foremost. The next verse mentions that the twelve were able to cast out demons and heal the sick. But the first thing that Mark tells us is that they went out and preached that people should repent. The reason why he mentioned that first is because it is of first importance. The preaching of repentance, please hear this. The preaching of repentance has an impact on people's eternal destiny. Healing a person is significant. But when you stop to think about it, what eternal good does it do to heal someone if that person ends up in eternity apart from Christ? So the priority of their ministry was the preaching of repentance, not on demon deliverance and healing, as important as that was to corroborate their message. The priority was the preaching of repentance. Jesus had to remind some of his other disciples about this very issue at a later date. When he sent out the twelve, I mean the seventy in Luke chapter 10, they returned from their mission with excitement because of their ability to cast out demons. Luke 10, 17 says, Then the seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Three verses later in verse 20, Jesus responded to them by saying, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the demons, uh, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Jesus had to remind them that your eternal destiny or anyone's eternal destiny is paramount. It's the most important issue. But sadly, this reality is completely lost in many segments of Christianity today that emphasize healing and miracles and speaking in tongues and other supposed supernatural phenomena. It is not uncommon. You know what I'm talking about. You've seen them. You've heard them. It's not uncommon to see or hear advertisements about healing services and deliverance services. Have you ever seen an advertisement for a repentance service? I doubt it. Because our natural tendency is to focus on the wrong priorities. Our natural tendency is to focus on that which is temporal and not that which is eternal. That is why in Matthew 6, 19 through 21, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That last statement is the key principle. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your treasure is that which is temporal, your heart will be focused on that which is temporal. If your treasure is that which is eternal, your heart will be focused on that which is eternal. That's why Jesus said, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. It was his way of saying, Keep your focus on the issue of eternal destiny. 
yours and others because it is the most important issue. That's why the first priority of the 12 was to go out and preach that people should repent. Interestingly, but not surprisingly, at the end of our Lord's ministry, he gave this same commission. Luke 24, 47 records Jesus saying that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Jesus himself preached repentance throughout his ministry. He sent out the twelve to preach repentance on their short-term mission. And he gave that responsibility to all of us to carry it out until he returns again. Repentance is at the heart of our message. In Acts 20, 21, the Apostle Paul summed up his ministry by saying that its focus was, quote, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, that's our message. We proclaim repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the twelve preached when Jesus sent them out. But that's not all they did. Because verse 13 says, And they cast out many demons, and anointed with oil many who were sick, and healed them. These were unique Miraculous sign gifts given by Jesus to his disciples when he sent them out to do this work. These sign gifts would verify that, that these men were representatives of the king. They were spokesmen for the king and his kingdom. Just as the miracles of Jesus were a foretaste and a foreshadowing of the future kingdom, the same miraculous power displayed by the disciples would validate their message. That the kingdom has drawn near because the king was present on earth. So that was to be their message. That was to be their mission. And that was to be their methodology. With this unique power, it would be obvious that the disciples were representatives of Jesus. They were able to do the same things he did. It's that simple. They preached a message of repentance, which is a strong message. Why should anyone listen to them? That's a valid question. They're going around all around Israel calling people to repent. Repent of your sin. Let go of your sin. Turn to Jesus Christ. He's the king. Follow him. Why should anyone listen? Who, who are you guys? What are your credentials? What verifies your authority? Why should we listen to you? Today, the written word of God verifies the messenger but before the New Testament was written, God verified the messenger by miracles. So they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Back in the first century, olive oil was often used in a medicinal way to soothe wounds and promote healing. Do you remember the story that Jesus told uh, of the man on the Jericho Road? who was beaten, and then the good Samaritan came along and put oil and wine in his wounds. The oil would be soothing. The wine with the alcohol would have a medicinal benefit. That's the way olive oil was used. But in this situation, it seems to be used symbolically. It was used to represent the power and presence of the Holy Spirit on the apostles to give them this supernatural ability. 
By the way, there wasn't anything magical or supernatural in the oil. In fact, oil is never, please hear this, oil is never mentioned in any of the recorded healings of Jesus and the apostles. Never. Never. So we know there wasn't anything magical in the oil. There wasn't anything supernatural in the oil. But it was an appropriate symbol of the healing power Jesus gave to his men. These were ordinary men with an extraordinary task. They weren't supermen. They weren't super saints. That is not at all how Scripture presents them. Sure, they had a unique role and a unique authority and unique power as apostles, but they were still just men. Beloved, it's so important to realize they were ordinary men like you and me. They had weaknesses. They had shortcomings. If you don't see that, you will tend to dismiss their example as being irrelevant to your own life. It's our tendency to put these men on a pedestal as superhuman. As a result, it's easy to assume that we can't ever be useful to the Lord as they were. Please hear me. That is so inaccurate. These were ordinary men whom the Lord transformed and molded and grew and matured and trained and equipped and shaped to be what he wanted them to be. And the Lord can do the same thing in us. As we close the message, I want you to turn with me over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Because there's a passage I think of when I think about the 12 apostles. Of course, they're called the 12. We know Judas eventually proved that he wasn't genuine, but they're still called the Twelve. I think of this passage often when considering the lives of the apostles. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul would write these words many years later to Timothy, who is pastoring in Ephesus. And he uses an analogy to Timothy to talk about what life is like in the family of God and how some people in the family of God are useful to the Lord and others aren't by their own choices. And so he says this in verse 19. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Now here Paul is using an illustration or an analogy we can all understand, relate to. He says, you know, in a house you have some, some good, you know, uh, some good dishes and maybe you have just some old plastic bowls that you grab out in the morning if you're going to eat a bowl of cereal on the run. But if you're going to have company, you're probably not going to use that. You'll have something that's a little nicer. There's, there's not any implication of evil here. It's just some are, you know, gold and silver. Some are wood and clay. There's nothing immoral or evil about wood and clay. Just some have special purposes. That a, a unique purpose. And they're uniquely qualified to use in those unique situations. That's what he's saying. And so here's his application. Verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter. Look at that. He's talking about all of us in the family of God. If anyone will cleanse himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor. Sanctified. And useful for the master. Prepared for every good work. That last verse describes the lives of the apostles. They were vessels of honor, 
sanctified and useful to the master. But please notice that Paul says we can be that too. He says if anyone, any one of us can be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the master, if we are willing to yield to the Lord as he transforms us and molds us and grows us and matures us and trains us and equips us and shapes us to be what he wants us to be. Any one of, of us in here who knows the Lord can be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful to the master. Are you willing? Are you willing to be a vessel of honor, sanctified, useful to the master? The starting point, the starting point is to make sure that you know the Lord personally as your Lord and Savior. The starting point is to humble yourself before Him in repentance to receive Him into your life. So if you have never received Jesus Christ and His salvation, I urge you to do that. That's where you begin to become a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful to the Master. Let's bow together in closing. As we close our time together this morning, please take just a a minute or two to reflect on what you've seen and heard from God's Word this morning, and especially this passage there in 2 Timothy that we closed with, where Paul challenges us in this great household of God to be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful to the Master, just as the disciples were, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Bartholomew, Thomas, all of these men. Judas, of course, excluded because he never really yielded to Christ. And maybe there is someone like that here this morning. You you look like you just blend into the crowd with everyone else around you. But in your heart, there's no surrender to Christ. In your heart, there's no yielding to Christ, just like Judas. And maybe, like Judas, nobody nobody around you knows that or suspects that. Maybe even friends and family members assume that you're a genuine follower of the Lord when you're not. If that is you, or even if that doesn't exactly describe you as someone who looks real, if if you don't know Christ, if you've never repented and yielded your life to Christ, I urge you this morning, to do that. Remember the warning Jesus gave. If you hear the truth, you hear it clearly, you reject it, it'll be more tolerable for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah than for you in the day of judgment. Don't reject the Lord's call on your life, the call to repentance. Father, as we close our time together this morning, looking back at how the Lord Jesus worked with his men to prepare them and send them and to further train them. We know that this was not the end, not by any means. He sent them out, gave them ministry experience, brought them back together, instructed them more, equipped them more, trained them more, before eventually sending them out on their own when he went back to your right hand. So as we look at how the Lord Jesus worked with his men, We see so many parallels about how he works with us 
to equip us and take us through experiences in life that will grow us and mature us. Often those experiences are hardships because of the way trials shape us and mature us and mold us. But as we look at that and think of Paul's words in 2 Timothy, it's encouraging, it's exciting to know that we too can be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful to the Master. But Lord, we also realize that there could be there could be people in our midst who don't truly know your son, Jesus Christ, who have never really yielded to him, just like Judas, who was there in the midst of the disciples, looked real, seemed genuine, but was not. Father, if there are those like that here in our midst this morning, please break through. Do whatever it takes, whatever is necessary to bring that man or woman, young person, whoever it is, to repentance, to humility, to genuine faith in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.